had a lot of thoughts swirling around in my mind this morning, even about this topic. And um, I was reminded last Sunday, or a while back, we did a survey for the youth, and one of the, we learned a lot of great things, things that are working and some things we need to work on. And one that we saw was an issue, a lot of the youth rated their ability to get their self-esteem from Christ as low. And Abe and I talked about that, and the parent leadership team talked about that, and we realized, wow, that's, that's a really important issue. And so last Sunday, I dealt with that with the high schoolers, and uh, it was really a powerful time. Um, and it, it, it really struck my heart, wow, this is so important. This is where the rubber meets the road for high school students, is they're hearing so many lies you know, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I can't do that. And, and they need so much to know that their value and their esteem comes from the Lord and who they are in Him. And that they're creating His image and, you know, seeing, you know, some of the sharpest students and admitting the lie that they hear the most in their ears that I'll never do anything significant. And you realize, wow, that is, Satan, we're in a battle with Satan, and, and we have to fight it with the truth. Um, these kids, these youth, these young adults have so much potential and already have so much that God has put in their life. And so we're going to continue with that topic because there was just such a sense that that was, this is really important for what's going on in their lives that that is really where the rubber meets the road. Uh, and it's, it's so important for the here and now and for their future. And as we talk about this topic of, of God's glory alone, I, I've just got this sense that even in my own life there, I haven't wrestled fully with this. And that uh, in your lives as well, this uh, issue where God is, that it's important and that he's wanting to do something um, deep in us here that I, I'm not even exactly sure what that is. I feel like I'm only partway through experiencing what, what God's saying to me about this. But I do sense it's, it's really important. Uh, Jay has already gone over us for us these topics that we've talked about. And what I find interesting is uh, John Piper has a beautiful way that he kind of puts it all together that he talks about we need to think of these in terms of our own justification. That's a big theological word. But the definition here is justification is the judicial act of God by which he pardons all the sins of those who believe in Christ and accepts them as righteous in the eye of the law. The law is not relaxed or set aside, but the law is declared to be fulfilled. So this, these five solas have to do with our justification, how this legal term, how God pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in the eye of the law. And um, often we say, oh, justification, I was taught, oh, justification means just as if I never sinned. Have some of you heard that before? Sometimes it's defined that way. But that's not quite it. Um, just as if the punishment required by the law has been completely fulfilled and satisfied would be more accurate. So, so it's this legal term. But, uh, and even 
the need for God to justify us by grace. Why, why is there that need? Well, it's because our sins separate us from God and, and He is holy. But how do these all fit together? So um, John Piper has said it this way. We are justified before God by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone, through the means of faith alone, for the ultimate glory of God alone, as taught with final and decisive authority in Scripture alone. So these are our powerful truths. Let me pray for us as we start. Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, work in our hearts, that open us up to what you're wanting to say to us through your word that you've recorded in scriptures, your very words to us. Lord, help us to have ears to hear them. Help it go from our head down into our heart and out into our lives. We ask this for your glory. Amen. So, the idea of soli deo gloria is to God alone the glory. It's the concept that the glory of God alone is the goal of everything. (laughs) That's quite a statement. The glory of God alone is the goal of everything. And we're going to see that here. Where do we see it in Scripture? Well, the central theme of the Bible. About six months ago, I gave a message about the Old Testament and how it shows God's heart. Um, And in it, we've talked about what, how would we describe the central theme of the Bible? And we gave this sentence. The, the Bible is a story of how God brings glory to the Godhead by revealing his character as he brings people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and place into an intimate, transforming relationship with him. That's kind of a long sentence. If we had to make it shorter, we'd say, the Bible is the story of how God brings glory to himself. And he does that I've been working, I've worked on this sentence some more this morning. I've been working on this sentence for about 20 years, and I keep changing and tweaking it. it it's, uh, you know, it's hard to capture the whole of the Bible in just one sentence, but he does. It's about his glory, and he reveals it, he reveals his character. As we read the Bible, we see how he interacts with Israel and how he interacts with people. It's a story of how he reveals his character, his love, he reveals his justice, his holiness, his hate of sin, his righteousness, just all of his character is revealed, and every part of his character is marvelous. And as he, revo- as he reveals his character, it, it's like he brings a jewel out, and it shines in the light, and you go, wow, God, you're awesome. Uh, and he brings out all the, his different character qualities. But then he also brings glory to himself by bringing people from all the nations. We see the story of this in the Bible. Um, to himself, into an intimate, loving, maturing relationship with himself. And we talked about, we don't want to have this misunderstanding that the only way we glorify God is by bringing people from another culture into a relationship with him. Definitely that brings God glory. But he's glorified in many ways. He's glorified by our transforming relationship with him. When we used to be impatient, and now through the Holy Spirit, we're more patient with our children. 
that brings glory to God. When we're more concerned about people to where we're, when we're washing dishes, we're, we're praying for our neighbor and just asking God to bless them or we're praying for things because we know that it's God that changes people's hearts. So all that we do for God where we rely upon him brings him glory and says he's worthy. He's worthy of worship and that everything is about him. And we talk too about this idea that for some people this is problematic. Well, are you so everything's about God and it's all the story of the Bible is a story about how God brings glory to himself is he is he so needy? You know, that doesn't make sense. And I think this is where it's so helpful, this idea of the Godhead. Many times the Trinity is a mind-blowing concept for us. But here in the Bible, and I'm not going to go into great detail, we talked about this before, but we see at the end times all things are brought under Jesus' feet and people from every nation, tongue, and tribe are worshiping him. And when that happens, one day we're going to be there. Everyone that's a believer and is trusting in the Lord for their salvation is going to be at that scene where people from every nation, tongue, and tribes will be there. And it says they'll be in white robes. That may be figurative, just meaning we're all washed clean by Jesus and we're holding palm branches and we're shouting, salvation belongs to our God. It's just going to be this throng. It says a multitude. Revelation 7, 9 says a multitude too great to count. And we're going to be part of that. And it'll be a moment in history where there's never been so much glory given to one person. And it's going to all go to Jesus. And we're, it's going to be exciting to be there when that happens. But Jesus does this amazing thing. It says when everything gets turned over to him, then Jesus himself will turn it all over to the Father. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture that God, the Father, is doing everything he can, seeing people one from every nation, tongue, and tribe, so that the glory that Jesus is going to get is maximized. It can be as great as possible, because it's not just a few people groups from a few different eras of time, but it's from every people group will have representatives there, and it'll be from throughout history. And there'll be so much glory, because he is appreciated by such diversity. And there's just going to be this red-hot flame of glory that's going to be given to Jesus. But what does he do? He takes it and in turn gives it over to the Father. So we see the Godhead outdoing themselves, trying to give honor to the other members of the Godhead of the Trinity. And actually, I think it's an interesting idea. If For, for say, a Muslim, I, I'd be interested to ask them, you know, how is if your God is just... Our God is one, but he's represented in three persons. And that's why we love community. We're created in, relation, we're created in God's image. God has the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting with each other. That's why we need community. It's because we're creating God's image. We need others. But if your God isn't that way, how is it that he's not selfish? Because in the Bible, Jesus taught, told us, don't be self-centered. Be others-centered. But it all makes sense because of, of the Godhead. And it's, it gives us such a great example. He commands us to be others-centered, and God himself is others-centered, trying to see the Godhead receive glory. So 
So it's, it's amazing. God is just so amazing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think in the 1600s sometimes, many of the Christian leaders in the world got together, and one of the things, they came up with a, a number of truths that they wrote about God, but a key one was, what is the purpose of man or the end of man? They said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So what is supposed to be the purpose of our life? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And it's interesting that they said that they what they didn't say. They didn't say that the chief ends, plural, of man are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They said the chief end is. So they saw, it appears that they saw glorifying God and enjoying God as one and the same. And John Piper has, in recent years, become famous for kind of changing this sentence, saying the chief end of God is to glorify God, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So that as we enjoy God, we glorify Him. That's one of the ways we glorify Him. And that's what our lives are to be about. And they saw this, you know, more than 400 years ago. That's what man is to do. That is what we're to do with our lives, to glorify God and enjoy Him by enjoying Him. And John Piper is most very famous for saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's when we bring God the most glory, is when we are deeply, deeply satisfied in Him, that that brings Him glory. So this is a, a question that we really want to be asking today. Um, I once heard uh, something by Peter Drucker. He says, you know what the, uh, looked upon as one of the greatest businessmen ever and a great business teacher, and he said there's the two most important questions. Um, he said, number one is, what's your business? He said, in business, the second most important question is, how's business? So what he's saying is, what, what is the goal of your business? What, and the person says, oh, our goal is to become the biggest shoe company in the world. Then he says, how's business? How, how are you doing at that? Uh, and it's so simple, it's very profound. Uh, and I think in our Christian life, we, we need to stop sometimes and evaluate how we're doing, especially, I think, this merits it, something as important as the primary focus of our life is to be us bringing glory to God. That's our business. That's what we're all about. And so we need to ask, how are we doing? Ask yourself that right now. Just go ahead and close your eyes. How am I doing at bringing glory to God? How am I doing at enjoying God? question we need to continue to wrestle with and ask 
because that's what life is all about. And we'll never bring God more glory than when we're most satisfied in Him. So let's get satisfied in Him and glorify Him. Now let's continue to look uh, at, at the Scriptures to, to show that this truly is what the Scriptures are saying. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. It goes on to say, They pour forth speech night after night. The stars are so marvelous that they declare to everyone that there is an all-powerful, mighty God. They glorify God because they are so amazing. And then these recent telescopes that they sent into space, man, some of these pictures are just incredible. Make you feel so small. And realize, wow, God, you are so big. The heavens declare his glory. And in Psalm 19, it's interesting because the second half of the psalm basically is saying God's word is so amazing and it, it brings glory to him. Um, the law, it goes on and says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honeycomb, than the honey from the honeycomb. That his word is also incredible and brings him glory. In Isaiah 43, 6-7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he's saying, every person in the world God created for his glory. So he created you. He created me to bring him glory. In Ephesians, it says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul is saying this about Christians. Those that hope in Christ or those that have become Christians might be to the praise of his glory. We become Christians, the purpose God has in that and us bringing glory to him. Romans 11 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This idea that we know God created all things. So from him everything came. And through him, it says the universe is held together by God, by Christ. And to him are all things. At the end of time, all the glory and the majesty and the power is going to be given to him he'll be worshiped for all those he he already owns those characteristics but people will acknowledge that it all belongs to him so all throughout scriptures we see this in romans 9 23 paul tells us that all of it is in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory he's talking about these vessels of mercy being people He's created people to bring glory to him. Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The Bible is a story from the beginning how God is to be 
glorified on every part of the planet. The first command he gave Adam and Eve. Do you remember what it was? Anybody? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is before they've sinned. The first command God gives to them is to fill the earth. He wanted the earth to be filled with people in a perfect relationship, in an intimate relationship like they were with him so that every place would have those kind of worshipers. Why? Because when every place is filled with those worshipers, it brings such glory to him, such diversity of places, and they all honor and worship him. It magnifies his glory. Romans 15, 7, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is in Romans where Paul's talking about church matters and the importance of them having unity. And so he wants them working together. And he says, Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, that our relationships in church are for, the, for his glory as well. And then I, I want to take a little bit, take on this, on the idea of um, on a very personal level, we see this in, in the scriptures. Um, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone will be glorified, exalted. Okay, and, and here's where it takes this more personal approach. In Philippians 2, a very famous passage And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, this is some very difficult, challenging words here. He says, don't just be thinking about yourselves, think of others. And then he goes on to say, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held onto. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of his attitude, because of his actions, because of his willingness to sacrifice all the privileges he had in heaven to let go of that and become a man and a servant. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So people coming and praising him when every knee confesses those that have believed him and those that will bow uh, at the judgment day and they will finally recognize, oh God, you were true and you were just and I was wrong not to follow you. They will bow to and give praise that he is Lord and it will bring him glory. Even those that have chosen to reject him will acknowledge they were wrong, and that, will, that also will magnify his glory. But remember this part here about where it says, look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Because he goes on in this passage, 
And in verse 19 of chapter 2, same chapter, uh, he talks about sending Timothy to him. And actually, this uh, passage is the reason uh, we named our son Teo. The Spanish word for Timothy is Timoteo. So we just gave him the last few letters. But it, it was this passage that inspired it. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Because I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself as a son with his father. He served with me in the work of the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So he wants to send Timothy because Timothy is so concerned about the Philippians. And he says, there's nobody else like him. Everybody else, because he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone else is looking out for their own interests. But Timothy, he's looking out for the interests of Jesus Christ. Wow. You know, it's interesting. Just, we just read that the passage before. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And when we read that, we typically think, oh, other people. I need to be not just concerned about myself. I need to be concerned about those around me. Just like God said, love God and love our neighbor. Okay, I need to be concerned about people around me. But this, remember, this ends here at 11, and it's, it's the old continuous passage all connected. We go back and we realize this is saying more than that. We're not just to be looking out for our own interests, not just for others' interests, but that others includes Jesus Christ's interests. That's what he says about Timothy. He looks out not like the others, just for their own interests, but he's looking out for the interests of Jesus Christ. And what are Jesus' interests? Well, to summarize it, we'd say it's that God is glorified. But how does that happen? Particularly Paul or Timothy is interested in the Philippians of how they're following him and helping them become all that God wants them to be. So his interest is for Jesus' glory, that he will be magnified through their lives, that they'll live lives worthy of him. So we need to ask that question of ourselves. How am I doing at looking out for the interests of Jesus? Again, close your eyes for a moment and ask God that. Maybe say to God, God, how am I doing at looking out for what's on your heart? At looking out for the things you want to see done. The things that break your heart. The things you love. How am I doing at looking out for your passions, God? Even ask the question, do you, just think, do you often even pray that prayer? I found that in my own life, that's, it's too rare that I ask that question. God, how am I doing at looking out for what's on your heart? We, we live in a very self-focused society and it, it impacts us and we're sinful. 
But God wants us to live lives where we're looking out for his interests. Let me encourage you, let us make that our prayer more than ever before this year. To stop and ask God, God, what can I do for you? What are you wanting to see done? What are your passions, your interests that I can in some way help? Lord, I want to live for you. I want to look out for your interest and not just my own. And it's interesting, one of the things you've got to say then, God's answer is, people, people are my interest. The Philippians, Paul says, they're my interest because they're God's interest. I care about their souls and their lives. And we see Paul taking up offerings for where there's famines. He's concerned about all of their life, not just their spiritual life, every aspect of their lives. How much is your life, your concerns for others about, how much is your concern about people? Are you concerned with people? Is that a passion in your life? Then the next part of this passage talks about Epaphroditus. And he says, I thought it necessary to send him to you, a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. In fact, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Oh, lest that I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he was sent to meet the needs of Paul. And so Paul is now sending him back because he had such a passion for the Philippian church. He longed for them. He was distressed because they heard he was ill. He didn't want them worrying unnecessarily about himself. Uh, he didn't want. He loved them so much. He didn't want to cause them any extra hassle. Oh, just even the idea that they were worrying about his health concerned him. He was like Timothy, concerned about the needs of others, passionate about God's passions, which are people. I don't know why anybody doesn't name their kid Epaphroditus, but I'm glad we chose Timothy. And this leads us to the idea, what about taking glory or credit from someone else? How do we typically feel about that? I tried to think of some examples. One that came to mind, and I'm not trying to uh, bash Democrats or Republicans or anything, but one that came to mind was, do you remember when Al Gore said, I actually looked it up, he was on CNN, and Wolf Blitzer asked him, you know, why should people vote for you over Bill Bradley, the other Democratic candidate? So he began to list some things that he did, and he said, he said, well, also in Congress, I, uh, I created the Internet. You know, and he got a lot of flack for that. He said, I, I looked up the words. He actually said that. Um, While in Congress, I took the initiative of creating the Internet. I remember when I first heard that, I thought, huh, really? Did he, Al Gore created the Internet? <coughs> What's our reaction to that normally? When, whenever we see somebody taking glory for something we 
pretty sure they really didn't have that much to do with. It's not really a very flattering characteristic, is it? In the end, I did look up, and there, he's won many awards, and he was influential in commercializing the Internet, but he didn't create it as if it didn't exist, and then he brought it into existence, whatever. But uh, and it reminded me of the proverb, 11.22 says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Well, for a woman to be beautiful, to truly be beautiful, she should have discretion. And to not have it is a glaring thing that sticks out like a gold ring in a pig's snout. It's such a descriptive proverb. Um, in the same way, I thought you might say this. This isn't a proverb, but going off that, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is glory taken by an undeserving recipient. It's just not fitting. It's, it's just it's not appropriate. It's flat out wrong. Uh, we kind of felt that way when Al Gore did it. I mean, it wasn't that blatant in his case. Um, there was a case in my own life, and I was trying to, Helen was helping me, we were trying to figure out if I told this story. I know I've told it to some. Uh, I had a, a, a very awkward situation happen once in China. About Just before we left, we'd been in China about 16 years, and by that time, we had served longer than any of the other workers there, except there was a couple from Wycliffe Bible Translators that had been uh, maybe even 10 years longer than us. But there was a group of Koreans that were meeting because we'd um, moved back to the provincial capital and were supervising some people. And in the last several years, there had been about 20 workers that were mostly from Korea, uh, from South Korea, and some Korean Americans that had come. And so suddenly there was um, a, a lot of these Korean workers. And one time they asked me to come and share some about the history of the Zhuang work and this partnership that we had going. And to share some of the lessons learned, that lessons that we'd learned in our years among the Zhuang. So I was very happy to go and uh, share with them what, what we'd learned through our victories and through our mistakes. Um, and it went very nice, and my teammate uh, was there. He's a Korean-American from New York, and he translated. Um, and then at, after I finished sharing, they were very generous and applauding and saying, oh, that was so helpful. And then a guy got up that I didn't really know that well, but he began sharing, and I asked my, my team, I said, what, what's he saying? And he's, so he said, well, he's telling this story about how you helped smuggle North Koreans into China and to get them out of China. And I said, what? <laughs> uh, well, what had happened about uh, 13 years prior to that, um, we had a team from America that was five guys, all who were Korean Americans. They were helping us with this kind of a risky project, some materials, a video. The Jesus film had just been translated uh, into the local language, and so we were having teams come, and they were taking packages, small Ziploc baggies with some videos and some uh, tracks in, in the local language, and they were going out to the villages and hiding them and then leaving. But they were hiding them in places where people would find them within a couple weeks, but long after they'd been gone so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And then we were arranging for teams about 
two months later to come back to that area and not, they wouldn't ask if people had found these materials, but they would just ask some questions if, oh, do you, do you know anything about Jesus? And if they said, oh, I just read a, saw a movie about that, then they would try to further follow up these materials that had been started. Well, so they came and uh, was all trying to do this pretty secretively. So they came and we met. I took, had all these materials to give them. They were going to get on the bus the next day and go to this remote location. And that night when I went up to their hotel, I hadn't been to this hotel before, but they said, oh, um, you're not allowed, foreigners aren't allowed to visit guests. I said, well, well, these are guests from America. I'm American. They're American. And they said, no, I'm sorry, you can't visit them. So it kind of struck me as odd, but I'd never been to that hotel, so I thought, okay. So I sent them a message to meet me at our house the next morning. And Helen and I had been up late putting together all these cassette tapes and video, and our house was just had boxes of tapes and videos all over it. And so that morning at 6, they're supposed to come, and I'm out on the street waiting, and a car stops, and six guys get out of the car, and they're all policemen. And they said, take us to your home. So I, I said, well, what's going on? And I'm thinking, uh-oh, they've somehow found out about this or whatever. And so um, and um, I tried to call Helen right away. The guy said, put your phone away. But I had started the call, and fortunately, about 15 seconds later, she called me back. And I just picked it up. I said, I'm with the police, and we're coming home. And I hung up before. Yeah, and so she started frantically just scooping all the stuff and throwing it under our couch. And we had this one room that just had cases and cases of cassette tapes. And she just didn't know what to do with that, so she just locked the door. And they came in, and they began looking around our house. And they wanted to get into this room. And we said, oh, yeah, where's the key for that? And we had this big key ring with all these keys. And I'm fumbling around, and I'm trying not to find the right key. But accidentally, I end up opening it. And the guy immediately opens the door, and I go, oh, boy, that's it. That's the end of our time. And he looks in the room, and then he tells the other five guys, there's no, in Chinese, he says, there's no nest here. So they were thinking we were hiding North Koreans in our home. And it was because these five guys that had come, uh, they were, one of them still had, uh, only had his green card. He didn't have an American passport yet. The others did. And just around this time, this was happening where a lot of South Korean, especially missionaries, were helping bringing persecuted people out of North Korea into China and helping them leave. They, it was at great risk um, to everybody involved, the North Korean, as Koreans as well as these missionaries. And so they had sent out a letter to all the, uh, people in the hotels saying, if you have South Koreans that come and stay, let the police know right away. So I guess when these guys checked in, or I helped check them in, they called the police right away, and the police did some investigating and figured out. And so they followed them and figured out where they were going. Um, and that's why they were looking for this nest. And when they stopped these guys, one of them realized, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And we'd had a, he had mistakenly kept a piece of paper on it where we said, don't bring this paper in country, and it had our name and address, whatever. And he realized, oh, no, I've screwed up. Uh, what am I going to do? And so he, he swallowed it. <laughs> but unfortunately, the police saw him swallowing it, so they became very interested in what was going on now. So long and short of it, we spent 
13 hours being interrogated by the police, and finally they released us, and this team had to leave on the next plane to Hong Kong, and I had to show up the next day, and I thought for sure I was going to have my passport stamped. People were telling, our supervisor and others were saying, well, our experience is you'll probably be banned for five years. And so we're kind of expecting that. And, but it turned out they just gave me a good tongue lashing and gave me my passport back. Um, and it's a whole other story from there. We, but nobody wanted to be around us because we, we were marked people then. So, um, but all this to go back, somehow that story got transmitted to this one Korean guy that was at this meeting. And he was saying how I personally helped uh, Korea, North Koreans into China and was smuggling them out. And I'm telling my team, I said, that's not what happened. <laughs> I said, that, that's not, tell them, tell them that. He says, oh, it's too awkward. It'll be too much of a loss of face. Just, just smile. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, brother. And, and I said, what's he saying now? And he says, oh, he said, well, he's saying, this brother did for our own people, the North Koreans, what we missionaries weren't even willing to do. And I'm going, no, tell him that's not true. I didn't do anything. I'm just like them. I didn't do anything. And he goes, no, it's okay. It's okay. And then he, this guy gets on his knees. I say, my friend Steve. Steve, what's going on? He says, oh, it's kind of this Korean tradition. What? And all of them, there are like 20 people in the room, all get on one knee. I'm sitting right there, and I kid you not, they go like this to me, and they start singing a song to me. And I'm just like, under my breath, Steve, what is going on here? And he's translating the words of this song. I can't remember them, but they're... I almost uh, I felt like, what is that uh, in the Bible, that one scene where they're calling Paul a god or something? I wanted to rip my shirt and say, no, no, no. And it was very effusive, the praise in this song, like, you deserve glory and honor. And uh, it, was, it was very, very uncomfortable. All of them saying this. I'm trying to smile, and I'm just beside myself. And it's like, Steve, you got to tell them. <laughs> And so, well, in the end, we just left the meeting and left it, and, and he said, there was nothing I could do. The ball was just rolling. And just... So I experienced to take glory that is not your own. It's not a good thing. It's just flat out wrong. It's uncomfortable. And yet, at times, we're, we're guilty of that that we'll take credit for something. Oh, wow, that went really good. Wow, I'm, I'm pretty good at preaching, or I'm pretty good at playing the guitar, or wow, that was a pretty creative lesson I came up with there. And um, When our attitude needs to be to realize that all that we have, every good thing in our life comes from God. Uh, I think a breakthrough for me, for me is, is recognizing if I can, if I do something well, maybe I have a uh, developed. Say, somebody that's a skilled musician like Taco, um, especially playing bass. You know, has a very developed ability there. So he had talent, but he spent years working on that to become a professional, outstanding. Now, sometimes we think, well, 
yeah, God gave me some talent, but I worked on it. I put in hours. I, I was disciplined. I trained. Um, but even that, I, I came to see that, wow, why, why was I disciplined and others weren't? It was really God's, I can only give God credit for that too. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the answer for why I was able to persevere, well, God laid the foundation for why that is, and I, I can't even take credit for that. So all that we do, all that we, the abilities we have, the gifts, and the ones we develop, we have to give all the glory to God, and to not give it is to rob him of glory that belongs to him that should make us feel like I felt. Oh, that's just wrong to try to take glory for that. I, I can't do that. We're not meant to do that. We're created to give God glory. And when we do that, uh, it's wonderful. We, we, in, we find so much joy in it. So let us always give God in all things the glory and not take any for ourselves. And we'll talk practically in a minute on how to do that. So as we look at uh, Soli Deo Gloria, we talk about, well, how does it relate to our culture and to the church today? And it, it does relate. It's very important. It addresses the rampant narcissism or self-centeredness in our culture. Um, and there has been a really marked, marked change in our culture where more than ever people are becoming more self-centered. I just heard a statistic, read it yesterday, that they asked high schoolers, do you think you'll be famous one day? 45% of them said yes. <laughs> and then we have the internet. Um, that I read something recently that uh, 40% of uh, high school students do activities primarily so that they can take pictures of them to put on the internet. The reason I go to climb this mountain or to this place is I can get a good photo and put it on the internet. Not that I want to go there, but I want it's living this life for others that will bring attention to them, that will get them praise and get people to think, wow, you have an amazing life. Uh, we really noticed this coming back from China. Started watching TV shows, that this new thing called reality TV shows. Started watching those, and people are always saying things like, you know, they, well, how are you going to do in this competition? Oh, I'm going to win it. I'm going to blow everybody away, and I'm going to show the world what I'm made of, the skills that I've had that have been not seen by people, and it'll be, my, it'll be great. I'm just going to blow them all away. I was like, wow, where? on every show it was like that. I was like, where did that come from? America didn't used to be like that. People would say, well, I'm going to give it my best. I hope I can do a good job. And all of a sudden, I'm the best, and it's going to come clear tonight for everybody to see. Our, our culture is, is changing. I mean, already, I remember someone once said, you know, why are we so self-centered? And he said, well, everywhere I go, there I am. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of natural that we be self-centered, but um, that's why God speaks to that, that the purpose of our life, it's not all about us, it's all about Him. And so this speaks to that. We have to be so careful in our lives. We need to uh, you, that ideas make a difference. The way we think about our lives, the way we think about ourselves is important. Just as the way those students think about their identity is important. They need to get the ideas of Scripture in their mind and in their heart 
in the same way, we need to get these ideas of God's glory in our head and in our heart, in our prayers, in our lives. And the cool thing about this, though, is that though life is all about bringing God glory, the Bible's stunningly clear that we will be glorified with the glory of God, that God allows us to share in His glory. In 2 Corinthians says, We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we experience God's glory in our life as He transforms us. He shares His glory to us. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. We are now God's children. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. Wow, we're going to be transformed in a, in a moment and we'll be like him. We'll be holy like he is holy when we get to heaven. And it, we are going to share in that glory. He will receive the most, he will receive even more glory as we uh, capture the wonder of, wow, I've been transformed. I'm like Christ. Our response, because we're like Christ, will be to praise God all the more. And I just, it's wonderful what, God's plans for us. Those he predestined, he called. Those to whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he wants to bring glory to us as part of it. This idea of sharing in God's glory, this is a picture of a man named Alonzo Babers. In 1984, he won two gold medals in the Olympics. I had played football with him my freshman year, I ended up taking a year off, so he graduated a year before I did. But in 1984, I was just entering the Air Force with another guy. I was going through a special training. We were becoming security police officers. And uh, there's a guy, Steve Healy, was in my class with me during the Olympics. And uh, he was Alonzo Baber's best friend. So we were in San Antonio, Texas. And that weekend, he, Alonzo Baber's was running in the 400-meter dash and in the 4 by 400 meter uh, relay. So S Steve had gotten tickets and was going out and all of us that were stayed behind were watching. We were so excited about seeing this guy that we knew running the Olympics. And he wasn't expected to even medal. He'd never won a medal in international competitions. Um, in fact, he, he's, he was fast when he was at the Air Force Academy, but uh, he never won the regional whatever, and I had a friend that was the miler on the team who just lived, ate, and braved running, breathed running. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, Alonzo Babers, he runs at track, and then he steps outside, and he, had, he smokes a cigarette for a while. He gets a, well, for a year after he graduated, he got really serious and trained really hard, and he ended up winning the 400-meter dash. So Steve went, and when he came back, he, we said, man, what was it like? He said, yeah, I was with him after he got his second gold medal, and we walked. We were going all over L.A., and Alonzo has his two gold medals around him, and I'm walking with him, and people are just going crazy because of what he's done for the country and of how proud they are of America and of what he's done and that he's a military member. He said, people are buying us drinks, and they're calling us into their restaurants to have dinner, and they're just showering everything on us. They want pictures of him, and they'll, you know, and they'll say, who are you? Oh, I'm his best friend. Well, get in here. You're a friend of his, a friend of mine. He said, there was so much glory 
that he got to share. And he said it was the funnest weekend he ever had. He got to share in his best friend's glory. And that's how God is. But God allows us to share his glory um, because he is so others-centered and so loving. I just want to conclude by talking about practical ways that, that we uphold this supremacy of the glory of God in our lives. One way is in our prayers. We've talked before about the Lord's Prayer. Its focus is, it begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It means may your name be revered. May your name be respected. May your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. So when we pray, the focus of our prayers is to be for God's glory, that he'll be revered, that his kingdom will come, that whatever this prayer is about will advance his kingdom and that his will will be done. So that's one way in our prayers that we focus on it. In talking about our plans, you've heard of this scripture before. It says, oh, we're going to go here and do this and that. And in verse 15, Jesus says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So in our speech and talking about our plans, let me encourage you to say things like, uh, oh, what are you doing next week? Well, Lord willing, I'm hoping to go up to Oakland for a conference. Um, and in the Muslim world and also many Arab Christians, they say inshallah all the time means God willing. If you ever heard someone speak Arabic, you'll hear that word all the time, inshallah, inshallah. Uh, everything they talk about, they say, God willing, I'm going to do this, both these Arab Christians and Arab Muslims. Um, and it can become rote, but if we can incorporate that into our language and make it genuine, well, Lord willing that I'm alive next week and... Uh, nothing happens, I'm planning to do that, Lord willing. It's a way of saying, God's in control of my life, so I don't, I don't know if I'll even be here next week because God's in control. Only He knows, but if He wills it that I'm able to, that's what I plan to do. Talking about our salvation, um, especially when we talk about Reformed theology, this is an area that's just really been encouraging for me. I know Paul's wanting to do a a series later where we talk about some of Reformed theology. Um, but a lot of, uh, one area that it's helped me is in the area of election, that, where it talks about that God has chosen us, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, but a gift of God. But often when we talk about it, we say, or, or when did you get saved? And we say, oh, I got saved last August. Um, this is a big topic, but I just want to encourage us that we would realize um, maybe we should say, God saved me last August. It's a subtle but huge difference. I got saved. There, in the 70s, I don't know if anybody remembers, Campus Crusade had a, a campaign called the I Found It. They put billboards that said, I found it, and then they had a 1-800 number you could call, and people would call and say, well, what did you find? And they say, oh, I found eternal life, or I found how to have a relationship with God. Would you like to know about it? It actually turned out to be pretty effective. But some people, I think, rightly complained. They said, that's not the best theology. I found it. It should say, it found me. Or even more, God found me. God was wooing me my whole life and pursued me, and he got me. Um, again, 
little words, but, and they can become rote, but it's the idea that um, one of the points of Calvinism I bring up here is the tulip are the five points of Calvinism. The second one is unconditional election, the idea that God picks us. He chooses us, not based on anything he sees. It's not like he says, oh, down the road I can see that Wade has a very tender heart. It's very open to spiritual things. And so I'm going to choose him. That God didn't do it that way. That he just chose whom he chose. And so for us to say, I got saved, that I did it, to think that, you know, even that it was salvation was a gift from God that he gave us. He, he just chose us. And one of the beautiful things that I've seen with people as they embrace some of these ideas and reform theology is they say, wow, I'm so humbled, God. Even my salvation, it was all you. I used to kind of think, well, it's because I was, I was spiritually sensitive. There was merit. I had some merit. But they realized, no, God, even my salvation was all you. And just this quote, uh, just pick up in the middle here. But once we begin to think this way, going back and says, um, the ultimate determining factor in whether we'll be saved or not is, is our own decision to accept Christ. If that's the case, then we shall be more inclined to think that we deserve some credit for the fact that we were saved in distinction from other people who continue to reject Christ. We, we were wise enough in our own judgment or good enough in our moral tendencies We were perceptive enough in our spiritual capabilities to decide to believe in Christ. But once we begin to think this way, then we seriously diminish the glory that is to be given to God for our salvation. And we become uncomfortable speaking like Paul who says that God destined us according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. And the last sentence, when we think like this, we begin to sound very much unlike the New Testament when it talks about election and predestination. And so we have to be careful. We don't want to, even when we talk about our salvation, take glory from God. He did it from beginning to end. So in our salvation, maybe uh, here. So when did you get saved? Well, rather than saying, I believed in Christ, maybe God saved me last August. Uh, uh, That's a way to give him glory, especially if it's in our heart and it's not just words. When we receive praise from others, I love the story by uh, Corey Tenboom, who went through the uh, prison camp, concentration camp in Germany, and then she later became a great Christian speaker. I really encourage you to read her books, but she got troubled one day. People, after she started her ministry, and she would talk about how God had worked in her life through, in the midst of the concentration camp, had enabled her to forgive guards. Um, and other things, and endure all this, to endure the death of her own sister while they were in the concentration camp, Um, people began to praise her and say, oh, I was so blessed by your ministry. And she told God one day, God, I just don't know what to do with that. What do I say? And God spoke to her and, and told her, just think of it like flowers. Every time someone says, thank you, that I was so blessed by that, just picture it being a flower. And you just, all day long, just collect that bouquet. And even if you end up at the end of the day with a huge bouquet, and then take that bouquet at the end of the day and just give it back to me. Say, God, none of this would have happened except you 
allowed it in my life and you used the bad things and you turned them for good and that I'm able to bless many people because of what you've done. Just give it back to me. That's another way. When we receive praise, take them as flowers, a bouquet, and return the praise to God, knowing that anything that's praiseworthy in our life has come from Him. Our decisions, this is an area I think especially, I think of many people make decisions about where, where does God want me to go to college? Okay? A lot of people don't ask that. Or what, is, what does God want me to major in? They just choose the major what suits them. Uh, what is, does God want me to go to college? Is a question some people don't even ask. But in our decisions, sometimes we leave God out. Maybe our current job, have we really asked God, God, is this the job you want for me? God, how can you use the abilities, gifts, and the talents you've enabled me to develop? How can you use them? How do you want to use them for your glory? Lord, I want to bring you maximum glory. So I'm going to lay my life before you, God. Will you direct me? I want my life to bring you glory. Is that a prayer that you pray? It's a prayer I want to pray more and more every day. God, today, how do you want to use me to bring you glory? I offer my life to you. And then in our worship, to exalt him, to worship him from our hearts, acknowledging to him everything we have is from him. And our obedience is our way of worshiping him. When we obey him, it shows that he's worthy and we are living out our worship to him. So let's, in conclusion, focus our lives on God and his glory and make that our prayer. Begin to pray more and more, God, how can I bring you glory? And then wait on him. If that's what he's created us to do, I believe he'll guide us and he'll show us and throughout the day he'll lead us into things. But let's make that our goal. Our tendency, our society is going to push us to just think of ourselves and not be concerned about God and His interests. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just worship You right now. You are so amazing that You love us the way You do. That You let us share Your glory. You call us to live for others, and yet there's blessing in it for ourselves. You're just Your ways are amazing, God. We apologize for times when we've taken credit. We're embarrassed, Lord, that we would try to take credit knowing that everything good in our life has come from You. Lord, forgive us for that. Keep us from falling into that temptation. And instead, we ask your Holy Spirit to give us a burning fire in our heart that burns with your passions and desire to be consumed with your interests and your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.